Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of The Bib Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX primarily in the mining, energy, and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raisings, send them an email with your details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention the BIP show in your message. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in this show is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. And I'm going to do it again. James Whelan is one of those professional advisors, uh, investment manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? That's bad. How are you now, Colgar? Uh, I am excellent. Uh, our guest this week on the show is David Bell, founder of Macrodisiac and UK Growth Director at TradingView, which is now the world's biggest finance and investment site. Uh, David is a macro guy, a great personality on Twitter, uh, ticks all of the boxes for us on the BIP show. So, uh, David, great to have you on. Yeah, cheers for having me, guys. Um, really, really uh, enjoyed the the chat that we had last week, but we've got to re-record this um again which i'm totally fine with because i've got more to add probably well good yeah good yeah um the um the truth is we did this show got it in the can and um there were a quote-unquote technical problem background noise uh, and it was just unusable and i wasn't going to put that into the bib show feed um but we are ready to start the conversation off um ken can't make it this week um but uh I, I know Ken had some interesting um, uh, questions for you, and I am going to start off with one of those. So it's this. Look, every investor, trader, um, uh, punter out there, um, member of the commentariat, right, they all have stories and narratives that they tell themselves uh, to justify or rationalize their actions, trades, positions, views, tweets, um, snark. Um, etc. That they uh, that they go about in their in their working life. Maybe it's allocations. Maybe it's uh, you know trading positions. Maybe it's advice, etc. But they all have these their worldviews. So can you explain uh, what your worldview is currently, and uh, then importantly, what you're doing to express it? Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. So um, I think my worldview at the moment is 100% focused on growth slowing down. Um, and predominantly, that's driven through uh, demographics, um, the amount of debt that's coming to uh, the global economy, and what that means for things like productivity, um, and how people can kind of get ahead. Um, I guess inequality comes into that as well. And a good example of this is probably uh, the more recent news out of China with regards to what Xi's trying to do. It essentially, it boils down to wanting to uh, get rid of excess wealth in China and perhaps you know promote some uh, equality, some some greater equality. We've seen you know the middle class, not just in China but uh, globally, pretty much get decimated over the last ten to ten to twelve years. Um, and so I think that my expression of this is, you know, by playing the long bond, I don't see yields um, really being able to make a, a massive comeback to the upside. And I think if you look over the 40 year term since about 1981 ish, 1980, um, all we've seen is yields tick down, you know, um, to, to lower lows every three, three to five years. So I think playing the long bond is is the way to do that. And my, my expression of that and has been since February is by being long TLT. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's how I 
see my worldview in kind of a, a, a financial market uh, context at the moment. So, do, you, do you, what about the Fed? Um, so, you know, we're looking at this China slowdown potentially. There are certainly indications of it. There's what you mentioned with Z doing what he's doing um, uh, in terms of wealth, you know, blatant wealth redistribution, um, trying to uh, rein in the uh, the ultra wealthy uh, people in China, uh, and you know, as he puts it, try to. Uh, share those benefits around the, the Chinese people more broadly. Um, and I mean, common prosperity is the, is the term he's been sh- uh, shifting around. That's the that's the the, the phrase in place is common pro- common prosperity. Common prosperity. I don't like uh, I don't like uh, bandy about CCP propaganda. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's the play. Anyway, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Tra- translation: raiding people's bank accounts and uh, yeah. handing out the money. Okay, so or raising or raising and fattening the middle class. But anyway, carry on. Um, so with all of that happening, um, and we've got the Fed tapering, uh, and you know, looking to withdraw that stimulus. How do you think that all um, lines up? Yeah, I, I do think in terms of what the, the Fed is doing, I, I do think that they are possibly going to be tapering into a, a, a bit of a, a peak growth, uh, growth slowdown um, kind of uh, market context. Um, I think if we're looking at, you know, the more recent CPI data points, um, we are seeing them kind of stall up here. Um, you know, people were focused on used cars, for example, and then we saw that tipped down back in the last print and you know that's kind of fallen fallen into the forefront people were up in arms over lumber all of these different things that are very very actually short term without focusing on the longer term structural issues to do with inflation um which obviously the fed are most uh, most focused on um and i really think that um you know what's going to happen is that the tapering will kind of have a, a can kicking element to it you know it'll be push forward a month or two or you know it, it just won't happen on the timeline that i think everyone is talking about i do think it will happen but obviously quantitative uh quantitative tightening um and tapering are two different different things um so sorry tightening and and tapering are two different things yeah. so i think um a lot of people tend to be a little bit confused on on that topic you know i don't think the fed are or will be in a position to raise rates more than to what it was, you know, pre-pandemic. I don't think it's going to go anywhere above that. Um, but I do think they'll taper a little bit. Um, and it comes down to that that kind of funny relationship where they just kind of want to give them some space to, to continue doing more uh, QE further down the line. Now, I would love if rates could be way higher. Don't get me wrong. Um, I Why do you say there's, that? There's, well, because... I think with low rates, if what's happening is that if bond yields are so low, if the 10-year US yield is uh, so low, then the risk-free rate of return um, means that things like equity risk premium compression occurs. And that contributes to you know, the kind of market that we've seen over the last, the last year and a half, whereby you know, you're seeing just ridiculous bids come into the market. You're seeing retail come into the market in Q1, Q2 at the, the largest pace than ever before over the last 12 years um, combined, I believe. Um, and you just get this massive kind of mania feeling. Now, I know George Soros said that he rushes into bubbles, um, but at some point that bubble will pop. Um, and I guess we won't know until it's, you know, yes. Uh, a massive drawdown in the market. Let's, so, sorry, James. Yeah, uh, that, 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 no, 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 we'll, we'll get into we'll get into the bubble in a sec. But what I want to do, and, and this sort of relates to something that we that we literally just talked about on the live show a little while ago. And I, I like to play the tape back. So if you, if you start if you start at the goal and then you play it back about what had to happen, we're talking about what does the Fed need to do to actually raise and react and, and do that sort of thing. Put into terms, and this is going to sound a bit funny, that put into terms what actually has to happen for the Fed to do what no one thinks that they can do. It, because it is entirely possible, because we're all in a new paradigm right now. That's sort of what I want to say. Like, what numbers do we need to see printed? It's funny that actually since 
since, since we did this the first time and now we're doing this now, we have those awful jobs numbers kick in. But let's just say, like, what, what actually needs to print to show and, and, for, and to lead the Fed in the direction that no one thinks that they're going to be able to go within the next short-term future? And, and is it even possible at all? So I think what needs to happen is um, the, the participation rate really needs to get back up. I think you can look at unemployment um, and you can look at what the Fed's previous mandate has been in terms of full employment. Um, but that was with a participation rate that was relatively stable um, over the last sort of, you know, 10-ish years pre-pandemic. Um, we had a recovery, obviously, post uh, the great financial crisis. But now we're 2% below the pre-pandemic level and it's, it's pretty massive, to be honest. And we've not really seen, especially with the most recent um, NFP print that we saw on Friday, we've not really seen a an upwards movement in that labour force participation rate. So I think, and Powell has mentioned that um, these not necessarily alternative uh, employment statistics, but these these statistics that haven't been focused on as much previously, they they've come into the foreground a lot more. And I think that Powell is, especially with the new average inflation targeting framework, he's looking at these different statistics to say, okay, we need to be more data focused. We can't just look at unemployment ticking up. We know that the Phillips curve relationship doesn't really work anymore. So what do we have to look at now to achieve our, our goals? And I really, really do think that that labor force participation rate needs to be ticking back up to 63 and a half percent can i ask you why, um, why do you why do you think so there's an awful lot of talk about this with the phillips curve which you know um, and there has been over the last decade that you know does the curve still work the way it does which is that effectively that the uh that the unemployment rate get, it gets to a point where you um, start to see an uptick in inflation effectively. Um, so the rate gets to a certain point and uh, the, the unemployment rate gets to a certain low level and it's low enough to start driving inflation. What's your theory on that, David? Well, I'm just taking it from what Powell says, really. Um, he says that 50 years ago it was, it was really, really strong. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the mechanism as to why it might have deteriorated. Um, but he basically said in 2019, even pre-pandemic, that the uh, the relationship or uh, the the connection between the two is actually really small these days. Mm. Um, and I, I would I would tend to agree. And you know what? Perhaps it is down to the fact that unemployment is a bit of a shoddy measure. It might have been stronger 50 years ago. Um, because there were more people employed, fewer people had, had retired, the population was younger, for example. Perhaps that, that's what it is. And I, I do think that a lot of uh, longer term market trend, trends purely come down to demographics and how said demographics interact with, with the economy. I mean, um, for example, in the UK, just, just last night, We've seen that the, the Tories have increased national insurance by one point is it 1.25%, something like that, which is actually a 10% rise um, versus the previous rate. Now, this is predominantly going to be paid by the young to pay for the elderly um, because, obviously, the NHS is apparently underfunded. It's not. It's just they spend money. It's, it's, like it's millennials, millennials paying for boomers and new reconstructions. Exactly. So now what happens to you know my generation in 40 years' time, 50 years' time? Um, Someone else is going to pay for it, isn't it? Yeah, but how are they going to do that? If we can barely pay for it these days, you know, we can't really afford houses um, on a general basis. Uh, the people that we're paying for could, of course. Um, so, you know, it comes down to these demographic shifts and I, I don't necessarily see how things will change unless there's kind of a massive uh, fiscal shape shake-up. And I'm a very big proponent of uh, taxing the value of land and reducing taxes on capital and labour. I think it's the most productive way to to get uh, money invested um, and to prevent a lot of a lot of slack in the economy. Um, but obviously, that's politically un unpalatable. Um, but I do gen genuinely see that there has to be some real change in how uh, how how things are, are happening um, to really avoid kind of uh, a broader 
a broader Minsky moment in terms of uh, demographics. I think it's, it's 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 really really important, and I think the pandemic showed it as well. Well, well cer- certainly one of the things is um, if the population pyramid stays stable, people having fewer kids, right? And as the um, you know it. it allowing for immigration not affecting the population pyramid too much as that younger generation ages through it in theory it should ease some of the pressure on the health system because it you don't need you know there's not as many people sick and etc um but then on the flip side of that you've got longer term you've got longer life expectancy which will be in the hands of those younger people coming through so uh even though there may be uh, fewer in number uh, in terms of needing access to healthcare at the time that they're in their retirement, um, they're living longer. So they need longer term, so, you know, when palliative care, et cetera, goes on longer et cetera, uh, and so on. Um, so it is, it certainly is. And this is a question that is facing the countries around the world, as you know. Um, and the other issue, and I think in terms, when it comes to the Phillips curve, the governor of the central bank here, Philip Lowe, uh, gave a really interesting speech, I think two years ago, maybe last year, where he set out some of his, he, admittedly, they were just theories for thinking about like, why do we not have this uh, wage pressure uh, building when we get down to, uh, you know, employment, unemployment rates at, at 5% uh, as, as we would have seen in the past. And one of the things he said, which was, I thought, really interesting is that he thinks that the threat of automation, so this this idea that, um, I mean, automation is a part of it, but this idea that your job is just not as secure as it was 15, 20, or certainly 30 years ago, um, gives workers less bargaining power. So they're not as much in a position to sort of kick up a stink at work because the jobs can be, there are so many solutions now for um, workforces. So if the workforce that you are currently, that you currently employ uh, is demanding too much or uh, is too costly, you, there are, you can automate, you can reshore, uh, so you can offshore, um, you can uh, slim down back office functions, you can outsource a whole bunch of things. So all of those tools now are in the toolkits of uh, corporates when they're trying to think about their um, the staff costs, which are you know as you know um, the biggest uh, biggest item on the cost line. So there are all of those questions sort of feeding into all of that. And I think it's really interesting. But at the same time, I will point out I've read something really interesting from the Fed. I can't remember where, um, but you know the Fed has those little research papers, mm-hmm. and they talked about uh, localized versions of the Phillips curve. Um, and where they their researchers found that in like in lo- when you look at down into s- lots of local economies, the Phillips curve is certainly there. So you get to an unemployment at like three percent, which is not uncommon in a local area, and um, an unemployment rate of like three percent, and wages start definitely start cranking up. So it's it's kind of yeah. still there. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a huge open question. Um, uh, I agree well, with you. Perhaps. Perhaps that's, that's quite interesting what you say there, because obviously, um, you know, if, if, if the natural rate of unemployment were lower than um, were lower than previously thought, so if, if, if say the natural and, and this goes hand in hand with your your point about automation, perhaps um, if the natural rate of unemployment is lower than previously thought, then perhaps the the, the the average interest rate or maybe a neutral rate is is also lower than previously thought and so perhaps you know the zero lower bound is where we should be um i don't necessarily think that but i'm just i'm just kind of trying to piece or, or take apart the argument and see see where we're we're, we're kind of headed i guess mm-hmm. and um, you know um yeah, I'll I'll, uh, go james uh i you know, I, I am getting that as well, David, too, from even like from my clients and also sort of in the back of my head just going, it, it, it's weird that a lot of very smart people are saying, no, it's it's not possible to go back to 5% change. And I'm just like, well, it, it, you know, just it just doesn't seem continually right for me. Uh, all this makes you bullish bonds in some ways. Does Is that a fair characterization of your view? I think so. 
Um, I, I do think so because I just don't see um, how how yields will will tick up too far. Mm. Um, I just really, really don't see it. And it's just from looking at the last 40 years, you know, if you want to um, look at things on a shorter term horizon, then yeah, sure. Um, you know, you might get some some yield spikes as we saw at the start of the year. Um, but for me, that that doesn't necessarily imply that there's a broad macro trend there because straight away back in March, we saw, you know, the people uh, talking about the reflation trade, mm. but then the reflation trades now totally vanished. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it's, it, I, I actually uh, did a, a Google uh, search in their advanced search on CNBC and I wrote an article about it actually. And I think it was like something over 300 and 340 articles had been written between January 1st and March 13th, when I think I wrote the article, um, with the words uh, inflation in there. Mm. And then I, I, I looked at deflation, the same search terms, and there were only 13. Now, of course, there's going to be a, I, I didn't exactly filter it down too much um, to, to kind of describe, you know, whether people were saying, oh, inflation is not going to happen or it is going to happen. But I think we can probably... Uh, we can probably derive from that where yields were going at the start of the year as to what your your mainstream media outlets were were saying um, about about inflation. And the conclusion I came to really was that <laughs> your professional isn't really going to be reading the CNBC website, in my view. Um, they'll have the Bloomberg terminal up, they'll have Icon, whatever. That's where they'll get their news from, and they'll be looking at data, obviously. Now, your everyday person is likely going to be reading, you know, CNBC and, and things like that or watching CNBC. So I think the influence of these more common financial media uh, companies had influenced people to believe that inflation might be coming as well, including your average retail trader. So I think that's where a lot of the reflation just came from. And I, I was just like, I, I just don't see it happening, you know, through the year, of course. There's uh, spikes up in, in CPI and things like that. But what I was always referring to was what will the Fed do? You know, mm. what what is the Fed thinking about this rather than, okay, what does the data say? But what is going to happen in two years' time? Will it lead them to, to raise rates? And that was always my thinking. And that's why I was so staunch on saying, I just don't believe in a long-term reflation trade. And um, so value stocks. You know, yeah, but, but uh, it reminds me of something that one of your compatriots, who's um, now based here in uh, in Australia, uh, we managed to snaffle him. Great guy, um, Chris Weston, uh, now at Pepperstone yep. Markets. But uh, he he many years ago uh, came up with this simple theory that like to be a successful investor or trader, what you need to do is just do what the Fed wants you to do. So. I totally agree. Right. So it's like so the last five years buy stocks. Right. It doesn't. It's 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 annoyingly simple. So, uh, David, you were going to talk about just how simple that was. Yeah, because I said on I said on uh, Twitter yesterday, um, from the start of the year, I don't understand why so many commentators were trying to trying to second guess um, when the Fed were going to do something, how they were going to do it, what they were going to do, and why they were going to do it. Because Powell has been very, very explicit since the start of the year. And I feel, and, and then Dario Perkins from TPS Lombard, I think he's the, the head economist there, he said, well, the sell side just likes to uh, write about these things to create some kind of panic or something like that. And I, I totally agree because yep. they tend not to want to look into the intricacies of things. And you tend to find that when loads of people are talking about a specific thing, you know, it's kind of like a one-sided tri trade. They're normally wrong. And yeah. and also, um, the outsized trades come from what they're not seeing. You know, yeah. you, you might be wrong, but you'll have a cheap loss if you're taking this specific idea that people aren't seeing, but an outsized win compared to what you were to do if you were to follow, follow the crowd. It's almost like looking yeah. at the bell curve. If you start in the tails and try and get out 
at the top of the bell curve, then, you know, that's, that's kind of what I try and do. Um, but I, I, I tend to think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. The sell side are going to sell side. So, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess I'm so, sell side if I'm I'll, 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 I'll test, go, Yeah, I, I will go, Col- uh, just straight. The, the, the easy example was, was this week, our investment committee, and, and this was just us just doing that thing, and it was like, well, the jobs numbers, you know, this is early in the week, jobs numbers, awful jobs numbers. Okay, what happens? The Delta, okay, Delta variants, could potentially be massive and everything's going to happen. And then there's this little silence sort of thing like that. And then someone just said, so just long tech, stay long tech. And it was just like so simple. It was just like of all the things that have ever been said, yeah, that's it. Like, I think, I think don't someone, overcomplicate it. I think someone said yesterday, um, and I made a comment on this, uh, I think it was Morgan Stanley, actually. They were like, where's the good news going to come from? And I was like, why the fuck do you want good news for? The obvious trade is that you want low yields and you can bid, bid the big big tech names. You know, it's, it's the most obvious. You don't want good news because it means that there's potential for a rate hike. And yeah, people, are, that's right. you know, people are so addicted to... Uh, I, I don't really like the term liquidity because it doesn't necessarily work like that, but the psychological backing of the Fed, perhaps, is a better way to put it. Mm. And if you're diverging from that too much, considering what's happened over the last 10 years, you're creating uncertainty. People and markets love certainty. So um, you don't want good news shocks in this market. As, well, well, a non- as a non-trader and a person, yeah, you want good news, absolutely. But for an investment thesis, you don't necessarily want good news. <laughs> well, speaking, speaking as speaking as the and this is one of those things that sort of comes up every now and then when when someone's just like, oh, you know, that, that that's bad news, James. It's good for you, and, and I'm just like, no, actually, I would I would rather, and this is sort of me sort of maybe maturing a bit, uh, and, and I'm sure that we all sort of do it at some stage with a few more grey hairs that it sort of kicks in. Just like, I would actually prefer. <laughs> I prefer that the economy was stronger and then it grew on its own as opposed to funny money to liquidity and Fed. I don't want the Fed on the front page and I actually want us to earn our dollars from the investment perspective as opposed to just buying this nonsense and and, and, and everything just goes up. And I, I, I do get that thrown at me. It's just like, oh, James, don't you want, you know, don't you want 10 15% a year? So like, no, I, I really don't because... If you get 10, 15% a year, it means that you're going to get some sort of or, or whatever nonsense we're, we're, we're staring into. I'm not going to lie to you, I would really rather have 30, 40% of people's portfolios held in government bonds that return riskless money. Yeah. And, you, 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 and and our job is to worry about the balance. R- rather of, than the I'm current, not going to lie to you. R- rather than the current situation where if you did that, your returns. For the port- for those portfolios yeah. would be terrible. Yeah, the part of the reason why everyone has had to shift to right. If you think of riskless on the left and, and super high risk on the right, everyone's had to shift this jump to the right to be able to get some sort of a return. And so the the things that were a little bit more risky have now had to be absorbed as if they are the riskless things. But isn't so that the point? Though? It it is the point, though, isn't it? Of, of low rates is to pu- is to push people and like get investors to tip money into um, new types of companies, new enterprises, find ways to grow new types of firms, etc. Although, of course, the issue is there's so much crap at <laughs> out at the high risk end of the yeah. curve. Um, and the pro- yeah, I think the, the problem comes down to the. You know the the weightings. I think uh, it was five firms last year that made up forty six percent of uh, the the change in price of, of the SPY. Mm. Um, and obviously, I think passive passive investing has made a massive massive um, influence there as well as to you know where can you get the best return? Really, okay, you can do some some funny funny magic with a couple of stocks, but really everyone just wants to stay in the queues and, and SPY. Yeah. Um, so can I ask you then, so, can, I, can I ask you then, so um, uh, you like bonds uh, as an, but but overall what what does that mean then, then for, for how you think about stocks? Because uh, in the old world, bullish bonds might've been a sign that you're kind of a bit negative on stocks, but what do you think? So I actually see, uh, I don't know if I coined this term or not, but I see uh, I see the large cap tech stocks as uh, blue chip sovereign bonds. 
because they're they're so awesome. big that and they still earn dividends pretty much all of them um that prob- that sometimes you know uh yield more than the s p 500 as a whole um but there's just no way and considering their influence as i mentioned with their, their weightings there's there's just no way at this present time that they can't go up in terms of how interest rates are relatively priced to them i think howard marks said this really really well in his note back in july he said that this market is totally fairly valued because of where the base rate is now it sounds absolutely crazy but it's probably true you know it's it probably is really true because um i guess if if you were to be at five percent interest rates where would tech be you know, it probably wouldn't be as high. Cash flows are discounted less. Hmm. So, so, you know, it's it's perfectly, it's, it's an unhealthy market in my view, but that's because of where monetary policy sits. Hmm. But in terms of actually fair value, I guess it's fairly valued. Hmm. Um, so um, thinking about the growth outlook, um, I want to... Um, ask you what you think the fed can do right um because because we've got this delta stuff non-farm non-farm payrolls last uh last week's uh three quarters of a million expected uh only a quarter of a million came in we can expect some lumpiness in the non-farm payrolls for a while they you know they've been kind of continually under shooting um, and you've got to kind of wonder at a political level, when does this start to become a problem for for Biden? Um, but uh, growth doesn't look crash hot, right? Um, so, but if if the Fed want, Fed does want to see two two percent plus growth over the cycle, um, but it's currently looking weak, what do you think they're going to do? It's a good question. I think um, they're in a they're in a tricky situation because. I think a lot of the issues that are being faced currently are kind of out of the Fed's hands um, in terms of supply chains and, and things like that. Um, you know, I really think Jay Powell's got a very tricky job in balancing the expectations of of the market going forward. And you know, people might say that there's a taper timeline, for example. Um, I think it's actually a real a real balancing act right now for him. Um, and predominantly it is because of the, the supply chains that I mentioned. You know, every month we've had something going up that's been relatively unexpected. Then it's come down, then it's gone back up. And it's like, uh, I think we've just seen a, we've just seen exports from, from is it South Korea or, or one of the big uh, chip manufacturers? Maybe, maybe it was some of their factories closed down again because of COVID. So what does that now mean for, for, uh, for you know, semiconductors and chips again? like it just constantly keeps going in a carousel and i don't think that's necessarily um a problem that that pal needs to to deal with if that makes sense i just think you know what he says and the narrative that he provides is really what the market needs to to settle it down um at this stage i don't really know what the fed can do until we start seeing you know all of these cargo ship builds come out all of the tonnage um i think there's you know 250,000 uh, 40 foot containers for example that yeah. are on order um until we start seeing some alleviation there um i i, I personally if i were power i'd say we're not going to do anything you know we're going to keep the tape rolling just so the market is content because let's face it i think since you know uh, the taper tantrum back in 2013 i think that's been in fact their primary focus and you know other things have come secondary um so yeah i, I think that's what i'd do if i if i were pal mm. but i'm not pal so <laughs> i can't necessarily answer that <laughs> we don't get to i'm gonna i'm gonna make a shift change uh real uh real quick uh, we're going to talk about some emerging markets in a second uh, but quick throw to the sponsor Bridge Street Capital Partners, city-based corporate advisory firm that specialises in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to either us or info at bridgestreetcapital.com. 
Donahue, and we are back with David Bell. Now, let's talk about Africa because, uh, look, I'm just going to just jerk straight to it because we did, like, we, we did the first take of this a while ago. We talked about the, the advantages that were in Africa and the demographic change. So you're a demographic guy. I'm a bit of a demographic guy there myself. So what do you see in Africa? And, you know, I'm the master of the open question. What do you see yeah. in Africa? Open, uh, open us up to that and then we'll go from there. At the moment, where's your, where's your vision on that one? Where's the trade? So let's take um, Africa's, I think, I think by, by uh, population size, the largest, Nigeria. I think there's 200 million people there. Um, I think 46%, around 46, maybe even 48% of their population is under the age of either 16 or 18. I haven't got the stats in front of me, but it's, it, basically they, they're a massively youthful population. Now, for growth, that is something that you want to see. You don't necessarily want to see an aging population like we see in Europe, like we see in uh, the US, to China. Less extent, China. Yeah, exactly. So just by way of thinking from, from that perspective, if we go back to maybe, you know, 70 years ago, we probably had pretty similar demographics, maybe, maybe a little bit less, but we then saw a growth boom, didn't we? Now, I think the main problem with Africa is the political side. It's, it's, it's very much that the political class tend to be um, above all else. I guess that's the same everywhere, but especially so in Africa when, uh, people really don't have as much say and there possibly isn't as much uh, democracy. And also money's funneled, funneled yeah. off and stuff like that. Uh, uh, yeah. found a, lot of, a lot of foreign aid um, provided to African countries and other countries around the world that receive it um, is actually sent massively to offshore bank accounts. So, uh, And just a great example of that, we've just had a coup in Guinea. Literally between... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> literally between last week and this week, West Africa has, I, I, I believe, changed hands. There you go. Yeah. Um, bullish for Sorry. aluminium. But anyway, so you know, apparently, which is a bit evil to say that, but anyway, that's, 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 <laughs> it's pushed up the aluminium price. But it, 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 carry on. Sorry, mate, as you were saying. And, um, yeah, I just, I just think that, again, you know, you mentioned you're a demographics guy. I'm a demographics guy. If you look at, how growth kind of uh, how, how growth changes as demographics change, um, then I think Africa is a primary long-term target. Now, I spoke to Macrodisiacs back in January 2019 about um, a favoured country of mine, which is Tunisia, because I saw that there could potentially be an African passport coming in, and this would kind of create more unity in the African bloc. And Tunisia, where it's positioned, is, you know, right at the top of Africa. Um, they would be perfectly aligned for, um, you know, shipping to come down to actually enter enter Africa. And so I was thinking, okay, there would have, there's all of this young labor. I'd suspect that a lot of the, the, the young labor would possibly move to Tunisia, um, have the market boom, shipping boom, um, you know, logistics boom. And I think that that would be a primary target. I think I mentioned last week that uh, I had no idea how to actually trade this, but you did mention um, a pretty decent ETF, didn't you? Yes, the Frontier Markets ETF, which is an iShares ETF, which has got uh, holdings in. <laughs> My goodness, it's got some. It's got some incredible things. Vietnam comes in twenty three percent. Morocco eight percent. Nigeria. Which you just mentioned, seven percent. Uh, Kenya, six point eight. Kuwait, six point five. Romania, six point five percent. Holdings and others. It's 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 one of those ones. It's like if you want EM, but next step EM, so sort of EM plus. Um, that uh, yeah, with a bit of spice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of spice because EM because this is the thing that gets me with emerging markets. It's like emerging Korea comes up in emerging markets. It's like. But if I talk to my Korean mates, I say, you, "Are you from an emerging market?" Uh, you know, like it's, it, it feels like you're patting someone on the head, but you're not. I mean, Korea has Korea has the company that has us all by the all by the short curlies at the moment, and uh, I, I would hardly think that that was an emerging market or an emerging market stock. 
uh, Taiwan semiconductors, and some of these ones are just like, no, it's 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 emerging markets are sort of uh, puzzled me a little bit on this one. But yeah, so FM is the is the code for that one over in the states, and uh, that's uh, yeah, a little bit yeah, a little bit of spice near emerging market trade. But yes, yeah, so it's a good one to me. But definitely Nigeria. Always go with the younger population trade on that one. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things to be ironed out in Africa. I think um, there's you know a lot of uh, domestic tribal issues still. You know, there's civil wars that crop up all the time, um, and I think there's a lot of things that are inflamed by what you know certain Western companies do as well, mining firms, um, oil firms, perhaps. You know. Um, that that kind of disrupt the the natural flow and the natural state of politics in in said countries because obviously money talks, um, and obviously we've got the example of China as well. China went and uh, built, you know, and, and the way that I, try, I think China have, have done their Belt and Road, uh, by the way, is basically some economic uh, economic colonialism. I don't really like that term, but I think that's kind of what it seems to be. Um, because, you're about right. Yeah, because I think you know, um, in which country did they they built a uh, a political center, a uh, union, African Union center. That's it, yes, where, where yeah. African politicians would meet, and then they found out a year or so later that it had been bugged. So Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa. That's the one. So I think there's kind of a perverse incentive for China to be there which is always going to be at the breath of the African people. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of that growth story, they're the ones that are going to win over the next couple of decades. So it's a real shame. And I think if African leaders can really, really push forward and be more pro their own people, try not to, you know, uh, negatively harm them, then that's the way to go. But I think the central bank in Nigeria, what happened last year with SARS, the, the police force, um, the the current uh, the current prime minister, he doesn't give a shit about the people really. Um, but again, I think it comes down to a lot of tribal stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, and certainly in Guinea, where we've had this coup led by this guy who who like looks like he's from, you know, a coup, coup leader from central casting. Um, you know, <laughs> like if you if you do it, you know, a Jerry Bruckheimer movie with, you know, right? We need a coup leader like who's who's a real badass guy who's going to overthrow the government, looks really dangerous. That's what we've just... So it's not going to help this, you know, uh, risk appetite for uh, for um, uh, exploration in Africa, I dare say. And having said that, you know, in Australia, we know a lot about unscrupulous, risky, uh, badly run mining companies. Um, we have... Hey, you're some of my best holders. We, well, we, we, have, we have, obviously, the world's best mining companies in Australia, you know, Rio, Fortescue, um, uh, BHP, uh, these world-class companies, you know, extremely safe, um, you know, and increasingly um, conscious on the environmental, social and governance side of things. Um, it's obviously a big risk for them. The chairman lost his job a couple of years ago as a result of it. But, uh, um, but um, ironically, ironically, ironically uh, Fortescue was never... Uh, and until fairly recently, Fortescue wasn't held in that same regard, and, and yeah, that's uh, they were always sort of the the, the, the edgy, you know, upstart, the edgy upstart, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just the new guys. But then all of a sudden now they've elevated their way all the way to the top. Yeah, yeah, just world leading. But then you have the other end of the scale, which are you know, there are you know very bad companies uh, here, but. Having said all that, we have a regulatory regulatory regime that kind of stops a lot of it, particularly like exploitation side, land council, land rights, all that kind of thing. Very different picture in Africa. And uh, David, there's a lot of these companies on the LSE, isn't there? Yeah, all of the uh, NEX and and AIM type firms uh, that pop up, you know, you're talking 50 to 100 mil market cap, maybe even less than that. Mm. it's, it, it does seem very pump and dumpy. Um, I've been to a couple of uh, investor lunches with them. And yeah, they get someone really smart as their kind of geologist or whatever, just to do the main answering of the questions from the retail punters. You've got a market maker sitting there as well, literally the market maker of the stock from 
I'm not going to mention any market making <laughs> firms here, but um, you know, it, it's it's quite um, bewildering as to how people can actually invest in these. I guess if you if you can understand the flow, have certain relationships, then sure. But people trying to look at the fundamentals of these things is just absolutely ridiculous in my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um... Uh, look, let me just that you mentioned China in your, uh, you know, Belt and Road, etc. In talking about Africa, can I go up um, to fifty thousand feet again um, and ask you about geopolitics? So, um, do they matter? Basically, uh, how do they figure into your view on positioning trades, etc.? Um, is it just noise, um, or you know, to what extent do you do factor it into how you think about things? I think geopolitics is is massively important. I think you know if you're looking at, at flows, um, then um, how do I put it? Say a headline were to drop. Um, sometimes you can trade off of <clears throat> said headline, especially some of the stuff that's coming out of out of China at the moment. If you look at uh, Hang Seng Tech Index, for example, it fell I think four point six percent towards the end of the end of the trading day last uh last night um because of what had come out to do with uh the the gaming to do with i think um firms like evergrande the hang seng fell overall so you know the, i i tend to look at geopolitics as headline based stuff hmm. because i think things can change in such a short space of time in the geopolitics space that you have to take a broader view on it and try and piece together, okay, what is the next kind of connection here to the market? Um, how do I infer what this geopolitical issue going on is going to cause to a certain uh, asset price change? I think that's the way that I look at it rather than always focusing on a certain trend, because I don't think you can, because you can have a negative thing come out of uh, geopolitics. Let's say you're focusing in on China. Say there's a lot of geopolitical flow at the moment and you want to focus on china that's that's possibly a good strategy to go through but the the problem there is that there could be one good news story and there can be you know a bad news story that sends the market down two percent versus that one percent increase mm. so um i think you know in in the us i think it matters less at the moment um i think in places where the the, the politics is more polarized so places like Hungary, for example, China, as I said, Russia, these are the places where I think geopolitics matters more from a, a trading perspective, because the, the impact of the geopolitical headlines and how things change are much more important. So one thing that I'm focusing on going forward is yes, China, because I think Evergrande is a huge risk and how the CCP deal with that is going to influence policy going forward and how markets behave going forward um, because it will you know show their hand are they willing to manage the bankruptcy of them or are they willing to prop them up and then what does that mean for how uh the 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 pboc and how the ccp will decide how much credit goes into the economy going forward i think that's a really good indicator of how to then trade the chinese market or how to trade certain asset flows coming out of there but the next one is probably gazprom uh, for me and, and Nord Stream too. I think that's going to be a really interesting one with how uh, the German elections coming up. And then I think they've said they're going to start building the Nord Stream 2 uh, on October 1st. I may have misquoted that one. So, so don't take that as gospel, but they have announced that they're going to start it pretty soon. And I think it, it's quite funny that there's been all of this chat over the last four, five years, maybe even a little bit longer about doing Nord Stream 2, but then they announced they're going to start right after the German election, right after the uh, Christian Demo Democratic Union has been found to be well under in the polls. So well under. really, really massively under. And I think that's a big risk for, for the, the European Union as well, um, because Merkel's been, you know, very, very tight in there. And it seems like the incumbents aren't as, how do I put it? They're not as kind of bolshy. They're not as Iron Lady-ish or Iron Men-ish, if I put it that way. Um, yeah. And I think Merkel, although I, I 
don't really like her. She was a half decent leader for Germany in that she yeah. took no shit basically. Um, yeah. And now you've got Macron, who is basically just the EU's little sissy boy doing whatever he he wants to shout about. He's I think he's a really weak leader, and the people don't like him either. So the two big countries now in the EU are facing real turmoil. And I think this Gazprom thing is going to be really, really interesting considering where natural gas prices are right now as well. Um, because essentially it's going to mean that there's more Russian dependency and it means that the EU are going to have to talk with Russia a lot more than they have been. Sure. Um, so it's it's a very, very interesting time, I think. And, uh, you know, this isn't anything in the next year or two because it's going to take ages to build this pipeline. But I think... Um, you know, looking longer term, that's how I see geopolitical things moving. Yeah, it, it was funny that I was asked to speak on this at the beginning of the week um, on gas prices sort of hitting almost record or actually going to record highs in the UK early in the week, that it was actually pointed towards, the, the, the what I could pick up was actually pointed towards the fact that it had been a less windy period in Europe than usual, so they hadn't been able to pick up as much load from Renewables so hadn't been able to pick up as much load from turbine uh, from turbines as they would usually do, and I was sitting there thinking, "Isn't it's, it's Russia? Like, what are you talking about?" Yeah, and and but no, no, no comment on that at all uh, about what's going on with the with the gas prices over there and that political play that is going on. I, I do agree with you. I think it's it's properly underplayed. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Carl. Mm -hmm. Get back to you. Yeah. Um so all of this, David, uh, it uh, all of this feeds back into one um, uh, big kahuna uh, in terms of assets uh, around the world, and it's the the dollar. Um, so the US dollar, that is, of course, not uh, not our our magnificent dollar that we have down here in Australia, but uh, our dollar's fine too. Yeah, our dollars our dollar is truly great too, um, and certainly not the Canadian loony um <clears throat> excuse me but um so it all comes back to the dollar dollar index and dixie uh, as it is known so um do you how do you think about the correlations uh, uh with the dollar index and and where do you think where do you think it's going um so i think uh firstly i, I tend to focus more on on euro dollar um, than, than the dollar index uh, as a whole, only because uh, it's weighted 57%. Um, the euro has a 57% weight in the basket. Um, and obviously, you can't really, well, you can trade the, the dollar index, but as a future, if you just want to trade it as spot effects, then uh, you can't really do it. Um, I personally think that it's capped through, uh, through the rest of the year between one spot, one spot, one nine and probably one spot 175 which is a broad range um but it's a nice it's a nice tradable range as well so they're the points where if i were if if the market were to push up to there then i'd be a, a seller and if it were to push down then obviously i'd be a buyer and probably get out towards you know the median somewhere um but there's there's an interesting dynamic that occurred uh back late last year and considering the amount of equities that prime brokers have taken on um it meant that many had to uh, tap uh, the 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 Fed swap lines for for dollars because basically banks had to um, use total equity return swaps to try and shed some of their balance sheets so that they could lower their uh, GSIB scores, which is globally systematic important bank scores. It's like a regulatory score. You've got to hold certain capital amounts, et cetera. So they wanted to lower those. And so there was a, a real real demand for dollars into year end. And so that would be the one event that I would start looking at um, if things like uh, dollar liquidity were to start uh, ticking up a little bit. So, sorry, ticking down a little bit. So if we were to get more liquid. Um, so things like looking at the uh, the, the FRA OIS swap, um, which is, you can get that on, on Bloomberg. Um, that's, that can be quite a good indicator of dollar, dollar liquidity. Um, so that's something that I'd be looking forward to repeat again, considering, you know, we've been in this real um, 
this real demand for equities. And I think banks are holding, you know, the, the shed load of them for clients. And they need to shift them so that they lower those scores, basically. Mm. Um, so uh, just one quick question. Do you have uh, a favorite trade that you've placed, um, a best trade that comes to mind? Uh, it was actually this year back in May, I believe. Yeah. So um, uh, I wrote about it as well. I said, I, I don't really know what's going on right now, whether it was in FX world, obviously sitting passive in equity ETFs, but you know, um, it's, it's not really changing much. It's, it's not necessarily a trade that's any different to the last uh, 10 years. But um, the, the trade that I looked at, because sometimes you kind of have to reach out of the box, is coffee. And I've never traded it before. So I bought J.O. and Koff, um, purely based on the assumption. Are they are they are they uh, ETFs or stocks? What's that? Are they ETFs or stocks or or coffee? They're they're, they're ETFs. Yeah. Okay. So Koff and J.O. Hmm. Um, I think they cover two different types of coffee, but I really didn't get that into it. I think it might be a Arabica and Robusta or something. But <laughs> this is how shallow my uh, my research into it was. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it because sometimes you just have a gut feel over a couple of bits of information. But the information was that Brazilian soil moisture was 40% below average capacity. Um, so it was basically dry, which meant that they weren't growing as much. Um, and also there were risks of frost. So I thought, well, sounds like a supply side issue. Let's buy it, see what happens. Um, and yeah, it was a fantastic trade. Um, I'm still actually still in it. Um, and we're currently trading, uh, so I got in at about 44, currently trading 52. Oh, nice. Nice little 10%er. So, um, or tw uh, 15, 20%er almost. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But it's, yeah. You know, the reason why I liked it um, was that. You know, it, it was it was one of these times where you're scratching your head because let's face it, sometimes you know it's, it's a bit crap to be sitting out. You want to you want to have a little bit of an idea as to what you're doing, just sometimes for confidence. And it's it's one of these times where you know you consider the the backdrop of all other commodities. Coffee hadn't rallied as high, um, so I was thinking, look, there's supply chain issues everywhere. There's these issues in Brazil. Brazil a major coffee producer. It makes sense, basically. Yeah. yeah, hasn't been picked up yet, and that, and that was it. The um, I'm just looking at the cough, uh, the cough ETF, which I actually have not looked at for like a thousand years. It's on here. Right? Uh, there you go. ET, uh, it's an ETC, an exchange for the commodity. Um, yeah. Well, there you go. Just so yeah, that's that's as that's as uh, that's as far as I kind of looked into the specifics. I saw okay, these yeah. are the two major coffee ETFs. Let's just have a tickle. Exactly, <laughs> and it is. Yeah, it is exactly that. I mean, it's, it's domiciled in Jersey, uh, which I wish I was domiciled in Jersey. But uh, yeah. Uh, so um, I've got nothing else to add on that one, Colbert, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's one job. one last thing I wanted to I wanted to ask you about. Look, obviously, look, TradingView and Macrodesiac being hugely successful for you, right? Um, yeah. I often get people. Coming to me asking for advice on growing digital brand and um, you know how do I do a presence and you know etc. Um, I've obviously got my own views uh, on those things, but look, um, with TradingView being so hugely successful uh, and you being the sort of um, growth director there, and then having grown Macrodesiac from where it is, and obviously building the uh, pretty substantial Twitter following that you have. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would like to hear from you uh, what your advice is uh, to people who are looking to grow a, a, a digital brand in, in the finance industry. Um, I think kind of treat it like a trading floor um, whereby you can't necessarily take yourself too seriously because otherwise you'll just be hated and called an absolute, you know, see you next Tuesday all the time. Um, I think you've got to try and be yourself online as much as you are in in person and i think just chat to anyone and you know if someone's got a question then answer it because i think that shows that you can firstly have a laugh you can talk and obviously provide value jesus you've got you've got to do that you've got you've got to be uh somehow giving some good insights you can't just be funny and and, and just you know having having a laugh i guess but 
yeah, I think those those are really the the combinations, and I, I do try and, and go out of my way to to help people, to answer questions, uh, to have a laugh, to connect people up. And I think you know it's it's just how you should be in in real life, I guess. And I think a lot of people try and have to feel like they feign who they are online. I'm like, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I think it's yeah. that, that's that's the best way to do things, you know. I think on FinTwit especially, sarcasm works fantastically um, because you can really weed out who is ultra dumb. No, it to, doesn't. Um, no, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 my, I, I've made an amazing trade of making of of not knowing anything about anything at all. But there is actually something actually actually now that it's sort of popped up, David. Uh, yeah. uh, now, how do you feel about anonymity on FinTwit? Now that you've mentioned it, actually, that's that's brass tacks. So I get it for some people who might be on the the buy side, for example. Um, they might have certain, you know, regulatory things or company policies that they can't say. Maybe mm -hmm. same for the sell side, but that doesn't really uh, work as much. I, I, I'm still dubious though because I guess. You don't necessarily know if what they're saying is serious if, if they they say what they they actually are you know it's a difficult one so me personally i don't necessarily judge someone until i actually meet them and then if they're a twat then they're a twat if they're a good person they're a good person um i just take kind of what anonymous accounts are saying um as information that i can go then and and look at um there are some people who I know who are anonymous and I know who they are and most of them have tended to be actually, you know, um, what they say they are. So that well, seems did, quite good. You know, we did uh, last year, we did a special edition uh, with three people who run. Um, yeah, three of the best. Anonymous three of the best. So we had, yeah. we had, we had Rap Capital. Um, we had eight 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 account, who's a um, a buy side uh, investor based in Singapore trading uh, APAC equities, um, and uh, ignore um, <laughs> who's, who who um, is uh, an equity trader. He's a Brisbane based. Bris Brisbane, drummer. Yeah. yeah, absolutely rocks the house. Yeah, he's Brisbane based drummer. Brisbane, 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 Brisbane. <laughs> Although, I was going to say. Although, that'd be a hell of a Twitter account. <laughs> no, no. Although, the, although, the way that we're going in Australia, uh, you wouldn't, uh, you, yeah, yeah, it could be a prison base. No, no, he's a yeah, prison base. He's a drummer. He's actually wide, widely regarded by some very smart people as being one of the better short callers in the market, which doesn't make you the best shorter in the market. It just means that you know when there's a fraud out and about. So, um, yeah, uh, it's very, very tricky in this market, though. It is super tricky in this market to be a short side, uh, a, a shorter. But uh, um, I, I think that there's a place for the uh, for the anonymous guys, and there's a place to to be built up. But I think there's a lot of BS with with people that try and be something that they're not, which is mm. really really painful. I hate the fact that that that, that financial regulators are trying to drag people from being um anonymous because because these are some actually some high level guys potentially that are actually just have a nice twitter account and they just do some things and they tweak around the sides and they just want to say some things and then you know they want to drag them out into the light and and no you can't have that account it's like maybe you should be having better communications with the people that are actually trying to save this stuff as opposed to doing what you're trying to do but anyway, yeah no, absolutely I, you know i always wonder if jerome powell is sitting there with you know, <laughs> 20 27 followers following <laughs> two and a half thousand people just watching and looking at what we're saying <laughs> i wouldn't put it past him he's such a cool customer um uh, uh, the j powell it, it, i would uh, you know it's what i do and it is right and, and we've got a few more years to deal with jay powell as well so um that <laughs> Oh, gee, it's going to be hilarious uh, uh, to see what's coming up. Yeah. Uh, okay, on, man. I've got nothing to add. Yeah, we should uh, we should wrap it up. Um, uh, David, it's been fantastic. Let me just uh, wrap it up here before we say goodbye. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the BIP Show was brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. 
Uh, Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show uh, in your note to them. Uh, you can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at underscore bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show, although we don't really look after the Facebook page. Um, J- James has a website. <laughs> James has a website which is now hosting all the extras that we can't get onto the show, including a few trades and positions that folks might want to have a look at based on the chat here today. Uh, and actually, David, uh, you guys might connect. Uh, you and da- you and James might connect uh, in terms of the trade that paid uh, from the show that James likes to pick out. Maybe look at coffee or something. Um, just to find that thing, just uh, Google Wheel and Capital. Follow the links to The Bip Show. We're all on Twitter individually at Colgo at James Whelan 42 at Ken, Ken Bexler when he's around and you can find David at at David Bell underscore uh, David uh, I, I must say I enjoy your um, uh, your tweets uh, uh, it's, uh, it's always good fun really appreciate you uh, making the time to come on the show for <laughs> a second time after uh, we had technical issues with the front, first one but uh, really great to have a chat to you yeah no you too guys uh, James, thanks very much for that. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you, David. Uh, that was a really good chat again. <laughs> and uh, more of it in the future. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.